it's over. You can't defy him. Watch us, mate. He is the one who grabbed us up. Look how sick he's fooled you, Warboy. He's a lying old man. By his hand, we'll be lifted up. That's why we have his logo seen on our backs. Breeding stone, battle fodder. No, I am awaiting. You're an old man battle fodder, killing everyone and everything. We're not to blame. Then who killed the world? Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 30, Mad Max Fury Road. Quadrilogy on Blu-ray issued in Canada in 2016 and rated 13 plus for violence. If you press play on your Blu-ray player now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. We open with a rusted metal version of the Warner Brothers logo. This is what you would expect a steel insignia on a car to look like decades after most life has ended on Earth. Spreading around the logo is a fluid most likely guzzoline, the second most desirable form of currency in George Miller's post-apocalyptic vision. Then you hear a V8 engine start and rev through several hundred revolutions. A V8 engine is an eight-cylinder piston engine which has two banks of four cylinders that share a common crankshaft. One revolution of the crankshaft will thus pump two pistons into two cylinders at the same time. Given a long enough crankshaft in a V8 formation, one crank will pump eight pistons into eight cylinders at the same time. This does more than just create a more efficient engine, as a V8 engine runs at almost half the amount of the needed resource of gasoline. The V8 formation also creates twice as much horsepower. A 2023 Honda Civic ES 5-speed has a four-cylinder block engine that produces 205 horsepower. By contrast, a 2023 Ford Mustang Shelby GT500 has 760 horsepower, more than three times the Civic. We open with an image that should be the poster of Mad Max Fury Road, which is our protagonist, Max Rakatansky, standing next to his police interceptor, the same car wrecked in the Road Warrior. Though this car was deemed worthless by the year 2000, This prop interceptor sold at auction in Sydney, Australia in 2020 for a quarter million dollars. This scene starts a 30-minute sequence that staggers the imagination. And to discuss it scene by scene with me in the Hacienda is Mr. Dave Anderson. Thank you, Dave, for joining us today. Uh, Greetings and thanks for inviting. This film I saw in the theater in 2015 in Calgary, Alberta, and it was and is batshit crazy. That was my impression. Yeah, it's uh, it's a movie that shouldn't work just due to its history and the background and the time between Thunderdome. So when, when was Thunderdome? 15? 1986, oh, 1987. So almost 30 years. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, it's been replicated this year with the success of Top Gun Maverick, which has probably got some pretty good synergies and analogs, but. Well, and taking into account that Fury Road, like all of the Mad Max movies, 
you don't have to watch any of the previous movies. It's not like one is they're all pretty independent films. Yeah, they are certainly not the MCU world building where if you miss one, you're completely lost. They stand alone, but do work with the other ones. So this is the Citadel that we see in the distance, which reading the book uh, that you gave me recently by Kyle Buchanan, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, I learned a lot of things in that book that I didn't previously know, which was the, the name of the, the Citadel. Now, yeah, in case you were... Uh, this reminded me a lot of actually of Thunderdome when he when he starts out the movie looking like uh, some feral animal, and then they shave his locks. Yeah, I mean, it, in some ways, this almost looks like a parallel version of Thunderdome. Maybe not a, a version per se, but an alternate timeline post World War. This tattoo on his back reads, if in case you didn't look it up, day twelve thousand forty five, height ten hands. 180 pounds, no name, no lumps, no bumps, full, clean life, two good eyes, no busted limbs, piss, okay, genitals intact, multiple scars, heals fast, O plus, high octane, universal donor, lone road warrior, run down on powder lakes, V8, no guzzoline, no supplies, isolate, psychotic, keep muzzled. 12,045 days is 33 years, theoretically, the same year that Christ was martyred, but also Byron Kennedy, George Miller's close friend and producer on the first two films, was 33 when he died in a plane crash before Thunderdome went into pre-production. Interesting. Now, these are the War Boys, which instantly I like the setup, which is a lot of them have lumps mm -hmm. or bumps, which I am guessing is some form of Tumors. very common cancer mm -hmm. that's been going around, which alludes to some sort of fallout situation, which means that we're living in a post-nuclear. Which is referenced in the opening crawl during the voiceovers as to what the cause of the catastrophe we're observing is. Well, in the end of Thunderdome, there's that, that scene that I, the, you know, the post-credit sequence, not post-credit, it's like an epilogue, which I don't particularly like, which mm -hmm. is kind of like the, the ruins of Sydney, and they're trying to start, the, the kids are trying to start the civilization again. And it's very obvious that something very bad happened to Sydney, and it didn't seem to me like that would be a place that you would want to go back to. The credit sequence. So that is the symbol of uh, the Immortan Joe. Emblazoned on everything that he owns. And that is our, our hero, the Imperator Furioso, walking to her war rig. Now, all of these vehicles were made almost from scratch and shipped to Namibia in the middle of the desert mm -hmm. for the filming. And they've all got their own personal backstories. Uh, that book, Blood, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, is that what it Blood, is? Blood, Sweat, and Chrome. Yeah, they detail to a certain degree the amount of effort put into just building the entire armada. And it was definitely a labor of love, and they got some pretty inspired builds. Yeah, it, it 
seems to be an engineering marvel and, and some of it was just it just seemed crazy to me like the morton joe's was two cadillacs that were mm-hmm. basically on top of each other because the only way that you can impress somebody uh is to have two instead of one i guess and i like this the uh the cod piece the it's, symbol it's a nice touch <laughs> of the immorton right going right over his his dick and there's a lot of but this is one of the beauties of the whole movie, right? They don't have to sit there and explain exactly what's going on, what's wrong with the folks, you know. Right. You kind of get immediately, just through the visual storytelling, the hierarchy that, you know, Morton Joe is obviously badly damaged, but still holds great power. Mm-hmm. And just the different mechanisms, which, you know, I've got a lot of questions regarding how this setup would actually work with the waterfall and all that. This engineering level post-apocalyptic seems very hard to pull off, frankly, <laughs> but that's not important. Right. You know, and just this little sequence here with very little hand-holding establishes this entire society such as it is. Yeah. The medical situation with the ventilators. Mm-hmm. Um, the retrofitted everything. Everything is retrofitted. And I think I read in a book where one person said that every time they invented one thing, it had to have three functions. Right. Which would make a lot of sense. And it shows just how much thought got put into this movie. I guess 30 years of development would do that. Oh, it's crazy. It was something that I think it entered his mind in 1992. And he'd mm-hmm. been working on it pretty much nonstop until, until it was edited together. That's one of the very few like full CGI shots of the crowd there, because they just didn't have the money yeah, for the extras. You couldn't get that many extras out in the but movie. But this is a great example of what the strengths of the movie is. The CGI you have to use CGI in modern action filmmaking, specific, especially rather, but not relying on it to tell the visual story, but rather supplementing some of the sequences that just are impractical or impossible to film practically. Right. In order to get your point across. Mm-hmm. And this was a budget of, I think it was 105 or $106 million. And it's a bargain. It, it, it is. It made 450 or something, but it ran over budget. It, it ran about 23 or $25 million over budget, and they went over, I think, by three months. But And we'll get into why that was as we went. But uh, like you say, the, the ventilator that's on his back or the, the fact that he's He's painted mm-hmm. uh, uh, teeth on the front of his mask, teeth that seem to open later in the film when he's angry. Right. There's there's a lot of things going on here that are unexplained. We're not told everything, and I don't want to be told. I'd rather think about it. Right, and to a, to a certain degree, that – well, no, not to a certain degree. That is the beauty of the movie. You know, there's a whole imagined world here with remarkable levels of detail that you can figure it out. And whatever you think of, it's undoubtedly going to be probably better than if they'd have shown it to you anyway. And the the war rig has two V8 engines in yes. it. And I don't understand. I'm going to have to have somebody who knows explain to me, how does that work? Yeah, I don't know how mechanically you could pull that <laughs> off, but. But it's impressive. V16 is obviously better. Yes. Well, like the, the Duesenberg, I think, was the largest single engine block ever created for a v that sounds I think it was like a v16 I mean, sure or something of that, that jay leno has wrong yeah there are plenty of people that tell us we're wrong 
Okay, so they're on their way to guzzling. Another thing that I didn't particularly uh, get until I, I read the book, which is fine. I did, it did, never bothered me that I didn't get this. But Joe, uh, Morton Joe is trading water to other settlements right, for, for other items. Gasoline. Right, guzzling, which is at um, Gas City, mm-hmm. and then the Bullet Farm, which I'm guessing is an armory. Yes. Now, the, the War Boys, I, I like this aspect of it. Uh, the War Boys are blood boosting. Mm-hmm. They're Lance Armstronging their way <laughs> through their uh, cancer diagnosis. And since Mad Max is O positive, he's a a valuable resource. Right. He's up there. He's top three or four resources available to him. Mm-hmm. And they must have some tremendous German doctors there. <laughs> Well, and one of the things that I like about um, Miller does this in all of his films, not just in Fury Road, but he really takes advantage of it, is Miller is not afraid of people who don't look like Charlize Theron. People who are, not, you know, not models. Yeah, they're or, rather unusual looking. Unconventional right. is a good way to put uh, it. Amputees or, mm-hmm. yeah, unconventional is a very good way to put it. Uh, there are people that would be derogatory, and I don't think that... the those words are, are useful in describing that there are lots of overweight people and people who, who fit a, a different image of what he wants to show you on screen. Oh yeah. If you look at the gyro captain from the road warrior, I love, yeah. Brent, uh, Brent Spencer. Gotcha. Who's also the mouth of Sauron. Sauron. Yes. Yeah. And then played someone unrelated role completely in Thunderdome, but Hey, Oh, that's no, no. He was the gyro captain in Thunderdome. No, no, it's different character. Was it? Yeah, it's different character. That's but that's the same actor. Th- but same actor. Oh. Yes, but different role. But not unlike this, where the toe cutter is a Morton Joe, and there's no relationship between right, the two characters. Right. But you do utilize the same, again, rather unconventional looking actor. <laughs> well, I had no idea that a Morton Joe was uh, the same actor as the toe cutter. No, wouldn't have known that if uh, it were not for the mysteries of the internet. Yeah, and the mother's milk part. Now, this part does frankly turn my stomach just a tad oh there's 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 lots of it and because of what they're doing with the milk and why they're harvesting it right so in that aspect it's like miller is fucking with you right Mm -hmm. like is because we're not put off by the overweight people or the amputees or the the people who who you would say are have special needs or deformed but harvesting breast milk for your own might be, satisfaction might be crossing over the line. That's that's <laughs> disgusting. Yes, that is quite disturbing. It really establishes that Morton Joe is a evil soul. Now this is really nice. This greenhouse. Yeah. But again, it's just one part of the building blocks that doesn't get really acknowledged beyond that single scene. Yeah, and the vault. In all of this, by the way, was shot last. The bookends. Mm-hmm. The first. Uh, the Citadel in the beginning and the Citadel in the end, those are the bookends. Those were shot last, and they were almost not shot. Right, and there was a lot of things that were cut out that, from the book, sounded actually fascinating. Yeah, the the gyroscopic uh, fight sequence, mm-hmm. that was the first thing to go. When the minute he got into the desert, uh, there was a producer with Warner Brothers who basically followed him out there and said, okay, well, we got to cut four weeks. And so that's what they cut. Which, the... financially, it makes sense. It's just an unfortunate loss. Yeah. Of course, who knows? Maybe it would have been cut or not improved the film in the slightest. It's a pretty strong film. I don't know if it was another 20 minutes or, or 30 minutes that it would basically help. I th- I like it that it's tight. No, absolutely. But how long, what is the total length of this? 
two hours and like 23 seconds. Right. So you could make a pretty good argument that even if it was 90 minutes, you would have walked in and said, okay, I couldn't imagine any longer. Okay. This is the, one of the places where I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. I described this to my wife. I came home from the theater and I was like, you have got to listen to me tell you about these guys banging on the drums mm-hmm. and then it's lowered. And then I told her about the doof warrior, which we'll see later. Uh, with a double string guitar and the fucking fire shooting out the top neck. And it reminded me a lot. Uh, and I am so glad I wasn't alone in this thought because I heard Kevin Smith on a podcast say the same thing. It reminded me a lot how the Scots would go into battle mm-hmm. and they would blow uh, uh, bagpipes. Yeah. And I'm sure that was intentional. Oh, I don't doubt it for a second. So here the the Valhalla sign with the fingers, the V, the V eight and the V eight, which is the four, the, eight fingers and the V right. Yeah, they're not putting their thumbs up. Mm-mm. Right. Uh, the pistons and nobody can go anywhere without a steering wheel. So, and, and this is one of the few things that they seem to own is individuals, right? There does appear to be a lot of communal aspects of this society such as it is, but the ownership of your own steering wheel correlating with your own vehicle appears to be one of the only things that identifies these individuals the war boys as unique yeah and because otherwise they look identical they act identical well they're child soldiers right but it is by by design they're somewhat indistinguishable they're basically stormtroopers right right yeah and altering themselves to look like you know war a skeleton warriors because mm-hmm. it's it's all about uh, facing their own mortality, and that's why Immortan Joan is so Joe is so important to them. Really, is because he's lived so long. Yes, he's essentially immortal. He is the Moses of his people. Yeah, he led them to the water. Until we see the Vuvalini in the in the ending, he's the really the oldest person on screen that we see. Mm-hmm. I love this car. It's a thirty-two Ford Eliminator. <laughs> It's got a special place in our hearts. It does. If you're a ZZ Top fan, this is the shot with the guys on the drums and the pan around to the side and the Doof Warrior just rocking the fuck out with the. Yes. And and like you, I saw this in the theater and unlike you, I saw it actually with my wife. This was a date night because, you know, we're weird like that. But it was one of those that when you get to this scene, you're sitting there slack jawed and either at that point you completely buy into it. You're getting ready to leave the theater saying this is patently absurd. And yeah. you can go either way, but the execution is so well done and so uncommon. Now, this is nice work. He looks at me, you know. Right. Well, then that goes into the cult of personality, which goes in deep. As the film goes on, you start to realize that Morton Jones, he's controlling everything. Mm-hmm. He's, it's like he's running a theocracy. He's a, he's a religious center. Uh, he's the, the head of state. He's the, the military commander. You can tell by the, the medals on his chest, which I would assuming in this future mean nothing. No, but they are establishing him as he who deserves your respect. Whether he actually even earned those medals is probably debatable. Right. But, because really there's no compelling reason he should be in charge. He's old. He's physically large, but with the sports that he has, he's by himself probably quite weak. Well, it looks like he's using his son, whose name is Rictus Erectus, <laughs> the the big boy. It looks like he's using him to uh, to as he's an, enforcer. an enforcer. And then the the war boys, including uh, the Emperor Furiosa, looks like they've got grease or 
motor oil smeared, smeared on their head. And this is almost like uh, uh, Indians yes, or Native Americans before they go into battle, you know, marking up their face or shaving into mohawks, just like Travis Bickle and Tra- Taxi Travis Driver. Bickle, or they previously referenced Scottish warriors. Right, right, yeah. And this is interesting. You have this completely separate group of the cars that ate Paris <laughs> showing up, and you don't question it. They're, I guess they're basically the sand people, if you will. Well, that's what I was thinking, and I'm, I'm sure that's um, – I'm sure that was a deliberate It wouldn't surprise me. Actually, homage. If he, yeah, if he claimed he'd never seen Star Wars, he'd probably be being completely intellectually dishonest. It, it would surprise me. But this is where it really starts to kick up again. And what do we have here? 45 minutes of nonstop? It's, I clocked it this morning. It's 30. Okay. Before you can breathe, it's 30. Yes. And that is the great thing. And they should re-release this in the theaters if people would go. Just to have this sheer spectacle occupying, you know, overwhelming your senses. Well, what I told my, my mother was that this was not a movie. This was an experience. That, that's pr- pretty accurate in a lot of regard. Yeah. And everything that goes along with it is just bonus. Uh, I'm sure that motorcycle flipping over the camera was CGI, but a I lot of surprise if it was, but I wouldn't say I'm sure that it was. Yeah. Well, like that guy coming, I mean, there, there was a clear, uh, fade from one image to another and i think the second image was a very like a half second or a full second of cgi like that's real they just slowed down the camera no absolutely and there was uh, most of the cgi in the film is actually just erasing wires and, mm-hmm. and other ve- safety vehicles driving behind other vehicles and changing you know basically the skyline and small details that matter but yeah very little of the actual stunt work is false and this is absolutely amazing It does. Just the collisions are, I mean, it's just crazy. And to a certain degree, this is almost the retail. This is basically a replay of the end of the Road Warrior. Right. Just amped up to somewhere between 10 and 35. Well, I don't want to jump too far back into the Road Warrior, but one of the most indelible images of my childhood is like the Road Warrior is actually like, to me, a horror movie. Hmm. And that feral kid on the hood of the truck going for the bullets and Max just screaming at him, like, get the bullets, get the bullets. I mean, and then, of course, there, the hand comes over the hood and then there's the collision when mm-hmm. Max pulls him, the kid back into the cab. Like, that's terrifying. Oh, it's, uh, yeah, absolutely. And especially to however old I was when I saw it, eight or nine. And it, it just seems like there's there's probably four or five of those images in this film. I mean, Max being on the edge of this Lancer, you know, so he's, he is scared shitless this entire time. Mm -hmm. And he is dumping adrenaline into his blood. Oh yeah. And that adrenaline is going right into Nux, who is then using it to do his attacks. Right. The double crossbow. So here, here's the entrance into Valhalla, the first one that we see. And everyone is urging him on. So, And the use of the chrome spray paint, which is a so, yeah, so very can, unusual touch. You can enter Valhalla all shiny and new, mm-hmm. right? 
because he's going to die anyway. He's got lumps. He's got mumps. He's got a couple lances. Right. So this is the way for him to. Oh, my God. Witness me, brother. That was one of the lines that came out of this film that went on for months and months and months. So Theron had uh, that arm constructed for her. She wore a green sleeve green over sleeve, her, yeah. her arm to operate it, and then they just painted that part out. I thought that was brilliant. And we should remember that George Miller actually is a a trained medical doctor. He was Mm -hmm. accredited. He had a license. He practiced medicine in Australia for a few years. And And saw a whole bunch of uh, bad auto wreck victims in the ER, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Which, I don't know if it was necessarily an inspiration, but I'm sure it was for the original Mad Max. Well, I think that he he was just rather used to seeing things that a lot of us don't see Mm -hmm. and i think he's very familiar with like one of the war boys that's on furiosa's war rig has got this pull to his lip probably because there's something muscular wrong with his face and it wouldn't surprise me if miller said find me an actor or ran across that actor and said i could use this actor Mm -hmm. in in this film for this purpose and actually i like that character who's who is misled Furiosa is lying to him Mm -hmm. and misleads him. And then he turns when he figures out what's going on and you're going to remember him because of that. Right. And he's one of the few war boys that is acknowledged, you know, they give him a personality of sorts. Right. Right. The rest of them are all kind of Hitler youth. Mm -hmm. So here's a slight, slight breath of air but right when you catch your breath you're going right into the storm and max at any moment is like i'm gonna die Mm -hmm. i'm gonna die this second or i'm gonna die the next second and that's fine with all the other war boys that's really not not what he had scheduled for the day yeah because what I what I love about this up to a certain point, and we'll get to that one point later, but what I love about the first half of the movie really is Max is a survivor. Mm-hmm. He is all about surviving, just living through the next moment and the desperation he has and what is alluded to, what has been taken from him, his family and child and so forth, this horrible past that he has, it's led him into that mode. Here's the guy. And there's Max's double barrel shotgun. Crew. Crew is his name. name. And then he he figures out she's in on it. And I do miss Crew. (laughs) And I like that uh, Furiosa has like these things that when we were kids, you'd go into a shoe shop and they would have like a a measurement scale, a sizer. And that's her, uh, that's her accelerator. That's the gas pedal. Yeah. And she can lock it down and slip it up into place. And it's, a, it's, it's a pretty good cruise control. And it, yeah. And it serves two purposes. The doof warrior here. 
Now, one thing, uh, the, the director of photography, whose name was Seal, John Seal, Miller told him that he wanted the subject of every shot to be in the center because there was so much going on and so much action was moving. He didn't want the audience to have to look around too much. Mm-hmm. And really the only other place I saw that just done to the nth degree was um, the social network with David Fincher, even camera pans left, right, up center diagonal. They were all tracking shots of someone's basically the nose or the eyes were at the very center of the camera the entire time. I didn't really notice that, but yes, it's a good point. And here they go to enter the storm. Yeah. Now, this is really the CGI really kicks in, and it, it'll go every shot until until the end. Mm-hmm. But you obviously can't recreate a sandstorm. Steven Soderbergh saw this, and he said, I can't believe you didn't kill <laughs> four or five people making this movie. And I can't believe that you're not still out in the desert making, making that movie. movie. And I can't believe he's trying to make another one. Yeah, Furiosa, which uh, rap production. Chris uh, Hemsworth is in it. He came back from Namibia about four or five weeks ago to push another one of his films. Mm-hmm. And he said they're done. But I, I wonder how long that will be in post-production. Oh, I... Is there an anticipated release date or is it still TBD? Summer 2024. Yeah, it seems fair. Yeah. John Seal's history you'll be really happy with is one of his first films was BMX bandits 1983 <laughs> with uh, Nicole Kidman. One of my favorite movies as a kid. Yes, but I don't think I like it as much as rad. <laughs> I, I, I preferred it over rad. Oh, well, there you go. Rad different, guy. different folks, different you, films. Yeah. You can, it's like a, it's like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. rad or BMX bandits. He did witness the hitcher. No, that's, that's a piece of work. That's an exceptional movie. Children of a lesser God, the mosquito coast stake out. Gorillas in the Mist, Rain Man, Dead Poet Society, Lorenzo's Oil, The Firm, The Paper, The English Patient, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Harry Potter 1, and Cold Mountain. He came out of retirement to do to do this. To do this one. And then he went back into retirement. So here Nux is getting ready to die. This is entire point. He sprays himself. This is entire point of living right here. Max doesn't appear to be on board with this plan. It's shocking rather. Yeah. But this does, you know, there are, there are people who, who think this, this is not outside the realm of reality. Like, um, I don't remember Harry Morgenthau, one of, um, Harry Truman's advisors. Mm -hmm. Um, when Harry Truman signed the paper that was made the United States, the first, um, nation to recognize the state of Israel, Harry Morgenthau uh, told Harry Truman, he said, God put you into your mother's womb for this purpose. For this moment. <laughs> and Truman thought that. He thought, Harry's right. This is this was the point of my existence. And then you fade to black after that enormous And it's the first time pass. you have silence in the entire movie. Maybe yeah. the only time you have silence. In now, this is so important to me. The next five minutes is so important to me. The, the trauma that Max goes through when he, he pulls his head up. This is how real people uh, come to after a concussion. Um, 
and yeah, how you can see every grain of sand, especially if you were seeing this in in a theater, mm-hmm. fall from his head, and he pulls himself up. I had a picture of Max, knucks over his shoulder, holding the door, and his gun in his hand. I had a picture of that on my door, on my office in Canada, <laughs> and I said, "This is what it's like to work here." <laughs> As you go through these experiences, I mean, just look at him just freaking out. This is method acting to the nth degree. Tom Hardy here, he sold me. I wasn't wasn't big on this until I saw this this the shot sequence. of him just trying to get over the trauma. That he just survived. But going through these series of events in which he, he tries to do something and can't do something. Each for different reasons. The chain is going through the door. The chain is attached to Nux. He pulls Nux out. Can't get the chain off of Nux's wrist. Decides very quickly. Just okay, that wrist off. I'm going to blow the wrist off. But if you if you see Max's reaction when he picks up the, the shotgun and dusts off the shells, he doesn't want to do it. He delays. Those shells are pretty valuable. Well... That's it. That could be it, or it just could be that Max, being a former cop, he does not take any delight in doing this. He'll do it, mm-hmm. but he doesn't see. There's like a reaction. He doesn't want to, but he does. He does but it, but get, it doesn't work. Gun again, doesn't. That gun work. fails. Right. He's masked up. He can't. So he's trying to like chew, chew his way this. through. Yeah. yeah. He is basically a. An animal that's been caught in a trap. And well, to shoot his and that's off. why it says it's tattooed on his back. Feral. Mm-hmm. They treated him like an animal. And that's the way the war boys saw him when they picked him up. So in between the time they they got him and the time they turned him into a blood bag, I'm sure. He was undoubtedly not cooperative. Right. He was pretty messed up. So this here, holding the gun, carrying Nux. With a shotgun that doesn't work, with a mask over his face, that's that's how it felt to work in Canada for a while. And I love the, his reaction when he turns around. He's ready to kill anybody he has to, but he can't. He's got to bluff his way through it. Mm-hmm. There, that shot there, that was what I put in the, the door. And what does he see? <laughs> These five angels in the, that in the desert. It's reasonable. That pause. <laughs> like it's, am I hallucinating? He does get his senses pretty quick. Yeah. And of course the, uh, the removal of the chastity belts with the teeth. It's, uh, (laughs) but again, it's one of those really delightful moments where a thousand, you know, picture taking the place of a thousand words. And each one has their own backstory, and Miller actually brought in a, a, a psychoanalyst who, who helped these five actors create their backstories. He's so thirsty, you can see it. So Rose Huntington Whiteley plays the splendid Angerod. She's the pregnant one. Cheeto is Courtney Eaton. The dag is Abby Lee. Capable is Riley Keough. And Toast, of course, we would know now is Zoe Kravitz, mm-hmm. who was an up-and-coming actor then, but now, of course, she's... A little bit more established. Yeah, especially after the Batman. 
they look like they've had the same treatment on their skin that some of the war boys had. It's, it's not like a tattoo, but it's like some sort of dermal manipulation. But what's really nice about this scene, in my opinion, is it's, it's basically a silent film. Well, to me, the whole... To a large degree, the movie could be a silent right, film. But, right. you know, this part especially... Yeah, well, I mean, he communicates with grunts and gestures. Yeah, Max has uh, 18 lines of dialogue. And they're all scared of him, of course, but he's just bluffing the entire time. So we, the audience, know that he's bluffing. Right. And in reality, would he would he hurt any of them? Probably not, but he's so desperate. I got to hand it her for having the horsepower to hit that chain. And this ensues this enormous fight between these two people who really, we find out from reading the book, truly hate each, each other. other yes. Yeah. And at this and point. Go ahead. Oh, no. At this point, everybody realizes he was bluffing. That gun, again, does not work. Right. But this is absolutely one of the, one of the more brutal hand-to-hand combat combat sequences recorded on film in quite a while. It is vicious and clumsy and really intense. Yeah, this is not like very chained uh, Jackie Chan school type of block. Choreography is is real. You could envision something like this occurring, even though it's a lot less, quote, fun to watch. Just the desperation in everybody's face. And and this is one of the things I find real refreshing about this movie is there's no kung fu. There's no falsities, really, to speak of. I mean, Max pretty much trashes her from a physical strength standpoint, which makes sense, right? And she's quite clever and uses her skills. Yeah. So it is one of those things where there's a good balance that seems very reasonable and plausible as opposed to a lot of unrealistic, albeit although very enjoyable fight scenes, where this one is like, okay, this seems, I mean, we're not going to see it, I hope, ever, but you could see it. Yeah. Well, Theron, we know from watching other films, and particularly like Atomic Blonde, mm-hmm. uh, she will go the mile. She will do whatever she has to do to attain the, the vision of the director. Oh, absolutely. But that was one of the problems they had on the, here's where he like, he finally gets her to stop. Just stop. And, he doesn't kill her, though. Right. He just wants her to stop. And that's why I don't think that he would have. Undoubtedly not. Right. And I think that eventually that's why the girls, I won't say soften to him, but they, they, they allow him. They try to kill him every time. Right. It's because he had the chance. Mm-hmm. So shiny, so chrome. So, well, that was one of the, this fight scene, it took like two weeks to shoot this. I do like how he gets his jacket back. (laughs) But it's also one of the, one of the reasons why, you know, they went out to the desert for nine months and it wound up being like 13 Mm -hmm. and they spent another 20, $30 million is they didn't have a script. When they started pre-production. Which is absolutely bananas. 
in in modern day, I think the last movie that I can remember someone just admitting to a reporter we did not have a, a script was The Devil's Own. Okay. The Brad Pitt mm-hmm. and uh, Harrison, Harrison Ford, Ford IRA movie. And that kind of shows. Yeah, it, it does, particularly in the third act, which Harrison Ford admitted you know, when Brad Pitt was like, this is the biggest bullshit I've ever gone through in my life. And Harrison Ford basically had to pick up the PR piece because Pitt refused to do it. He was like, what Brad was referring to was the the script was not finished. And there was no third act before we started filming. That leads me to believe that they put one in by the time they got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they didn't have one eventually. But this truly had no, no shooting script. Yep. Just images. Basically, the entire movie was told via storyboard. 3,500, I think, yep. is... 3,500 individual storyboards. Which makes a lot of sense because usually what a screenplay is approximately one page per minute. Right. So that ratio would not work on the, the script of Mad Max Fury Road. No. You have a 30-page script at most. Right. For two hours and, what's it, 12 minutes, two minutes? Well, and it depends on how fast you're editing. And I understand that that... You know, his wife is an editor. Mm-hmm. She edited a, a few of his movies, uh, including, I think, The Road Warrior. And it's like her arm is on the door. You've, I've noticed that. Several, I've never noticed that before. Yeah, it is one of those painting. where there's a but zillion details. She doesn't have an arm, but it's there. The, I have not noticed that before. So how did she lose her arm? Like, I, I hope we find out in Furiosa. See, and I hope we don't. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So anyway, so... I understand that the storyboards had were were the individual cuts. So he had the shot reverse shot. All, he had all of that planned out. The dialogue was written on the bottom of the of the card, mm-hmm. and it would even have like two seconds, three seconds, ten seconds. Hold, pan right, just like you would normal storyboards. Well, yeah, I don't think you're trying to imply that they went out there willy nilly with no plan. Right, there was just no script. There was just no script. Yeah, yeah. Here she's trying to bargain with him. Well, <laughs> it's and, like the one thing he wants right now is and, that fucking thing off his face. And a lot of this movie is just negotiations. Yes. Yes. And so to to get back to the storyboards for just a bit while we he starts filing very quickly. Um, I understand that a lot of the frustration... Um, that originated with uh, Theron and Hardy and then mm-hmm. spread to the rest of the crew within a few months was that, you know, how many shots are there of Theron sitting in the driver's seat, looking out the window? There's a million of those shots. You could probably grab all of those shots in the span of a week or less, but they were, not. but they were, they shot pretty in, much in sequence, in sequence and continuity. So they would have to do that setup several times throughout the shoot. You do it on day one, day 10, day 47, day 48, day 102, day 109. And it's the the same effort goes into setting up that shot. Every, if you got to take six hours to set up a two second shot, but he, he did it, you know, God knows how many times, 50, 60 times. Oh, certainly. Right. And that, that is a really uneconomical way. Yeah. shoot a movie. Yeah, Clint Eastwood would not approve of that shooting stuff. No, not at all. Or the guy who shot uh, that really good Wolverine movie. 
Uh, Mangold? Uh, yeah. Uh, the cinematographer, he had two cameras running the entire movie. Even in the those tighter room shots with uh, Patrick Stewart. Mm-hmm. He had another one just just 10 feet to the left or 10 feet to the right. The dag. They have got more than a handful of weapons in this vehicle. And it looks like three skulls on the... So here we go into the canyons. So like I said before, this was shot in Namibia. Uh, Namibia was for, I don't know, 50, 60 years, it was actually a, a territory that South Africa had, had claimed as their own. And the N- Namibians clearly disagreed with that. They had a, a revolution um, in, the, in the 80s to get away from South Africa. And the UN sided with them. Namibians didn't want to live in apartheid, obviously. Since, uh, since the UN recognized them and they've been on the map, they've been a pretty stable republic um, with, with a recognized communist party. But it's been so, so stable that many movies have been shot out there. And that's why um, George Miller um, had scouted out and took a look at it. Everything that they needed was about 50 to 55 miles away from that small town on the coast mm-hmm. where they, they flew everything in from, from Cape Town. I was, I was kind of surprised at the end of the book when, you know, when they, they kept sending these producers out. Like I think it was like every, every month or two. Yeah, that's to right. like you've got to you've got to get control of the situation you've got to stop all this spending got to do this and miller of course was like not listening to any of it but finally it was like the president of warner brothers had changed over mm-hmm. he stopped everything that was in pre-production because that's that's the nature of hollywood yeah it's the nature of a takeover in a new business it, it is it For is sure. whether it's schlumberger or or, or paramount brothers. it happens and then he fired the uh, the guy who ran the live action side of the business, and he was the one who greenlit Fury Road, where all the money was just flying out the door. And then the new person came in charge, whose name was I think Jeff Rubinoff. Sounds right. And he took a private jet from Burbank to this little small town mm-hmm. and shut down production for three days, uh, and tried to get a hold on the situation. And said, basically, you're you're this done in two weeks. You're done in two weeks. And Miller promised on a stack of Bibles, I am done in two weeks. And then that guy left, and then they went right back to, to doing what he was doing. Yeah, and I think it was um, the lady who played the capable, Riley Keough. I mm-hmm. think she said in the in the book that they're all wondering, well, so how much did it cost you to fly from private jet direct here from Burbank? It may have been a and day or two. Was two. that a day of production? Mm-hmm. And, of course, they shut down for three, but then, of course, the second and the third unit were still operating because they were basically cheating. And, of course, it's digital. They shot this on, I'm sure, something like a red. Mm -hmm. And I don't even want to think about what it's like to operate a red in this environment. Well, it's certainly better than an actual 35 millimeter, which would have been eaten alive. Oh, because the heat? The heat and the dust. Oh, the dust. Oh, my God. Yeah, we got to talk about Babylon later. I have not seen that. So this entire scene, that this elicited an emotional reaction from me this morning, where I actually was on 
capables level. I got into her head and then she says, then who killed the world? And she shoved him out the door. Mm -hmm. That line resonated with me so hard after watching this two or three times here recently. Who did kill the world? I think it's people like a Morden Joe. That's certainly the, well, basically everybody who's still alive. Yeah. Not him. Like he was probably some street thug who just took over after the fact. Right. But there's no difference between him and the people who killed the world. And it was that type of thinking. That's the same type of thinking that he's using to enforce his rule Mm -hmm. is what led to this situation to begin with. It's this this deeper analysis of just very simple lines of dialogue like that that I was I found really compelling. Yes, the wives are a little bit more educated than you would have anticipated them being in a circumstances such as this. They're all pretty independent. Right. You know. And all they needed was to meet the right person, and that right person was Furiosa. they're all very brave yes I think it was Tom Hardy's stunt double and and Charlize Theron's stunt double they got married and they met on the set and had a kid and yeah no you're right you're right you're right well, that's what happens when you're in the desert for 13 months. Apparently, and, yeah. You know, there are almost a thousand people, cast and crew, mm-hmm. out on location. I'm sorry, I said before that Max has 18 lines of dialogue in this film. He doesn't. He has 52. Mel Gibson had 18 lines of dialogue in The Road Warrior, which I'm sure is that's probably more like 12. Yeah, it certainly feels like it. That is a silent film. Mm-hmm. Even when Humongous is, like, giving a speech, you can't hear him. Yeah, it's inaudible to a large degree. Or unintelligible is probably a better way to put it. So they were ready to shoot this in 2001. The The entire backstory of how they got to shoot this, I think they shot this in 11 or 12. And they it took all of 13 to edit. Mm-hmm. And I think it was released in... In 15? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kennedy, not Kennedy, George Miller sold all of his Mad Max rights to Warner Brothers when they did Thunderdome. Okay. Because Warner, that was part of the deal. And, and of course, they gave him like an enormous four or five picture deal or whatever. And an enormous amount of cash, I'm sure. And so he gave up all those rights, which, I mean, studios need those rights in order to promote those films. That's just how it's going to happen. And then he got involved into Contact. Mm -hmm. And so they signed on Jodie Foster, and they were heading very quickly in that direction. And he bought, in the process, he bought Carl Sagan's rights to do Contact. So it wasn't heading in the direction that Warner Brothers wanted to go, so they fired him. And then Miller's point was, you can't fire me. I have the rights. Like, you can't do anything with this film without me assenting to it. So this was a bad move on your part. So he sued them. Mm -hmm. So it wound up in court for a year or two. But basically, Warner Brothers needed to make money now. And they didn't ever see another Mad Max film being made. So they traded the rights for Mad Max for the rights for Contact. 
So Miller got completely cut out of the deal for a contact and he got his rights to Mad Max back. So when he later on wanted to do, he was interested because of the, of the TV show interest that came up later in the nineties. He said, right. Oh, okay, I could do this 92 or 93. I think it was. So he had those rights. So he started uh, developing it. And he took it to Fox. Mm -hmm. Fox gave him, I think a grand total of 20 or $30 million. And he got to the developmental stage. And the next, the very next point was, okay, cast, set a production date let's go and that was in 2001 so they got down to i think it was three or four months out and fox pulled the plug they were like we this is getting too expensive yeah there's no way we're able to make this financially viable for us right so they they wrote it off they just took the loss then in in 2008 um, he went back to warner brothers warner brothers said okay we'll do it they put an equal amount of money down. They actually built the cars mm -hmm. in Sydney, shipped them to M Namibia. They had a crew in Namibia, I think, of about 50 people who were getting ready for production. Uh, they signed on at the time. Would, did they sign on Mel Gibson? Uh, I don't know if they actually ever signed him on. They very well might have. But I know that the discussions were very deep at that point. Yes. Yeah. Because I don't remember when the, the big fallout was. Mm -hmm. It was after Passion of the Christ. I think it was around 2006, 2007. It was mm -hmm. around that time period sometime. And they did ask, they did think of Tom Hardy. They did think of Eminem was one of the names. Yeah, I that saw that. Around. I cannot imagine that working at all. No, no, not for something like this. Tom Hardy does make some sense. Although I do wonder what would happen, what would have happened had they just cast Mel Gibson at this point. And I think it was one of those where he didn't really want to do it at this point in his yeah. career. And also still a lot of radiation associated with him, obviously. Yeah. But an older Mad Max in this storyline probably would have worked tremendously well. You know, and I don't think, it, I think it may have been a, hard to imagine maybe a better movie. It's hard to say, of course. But this one works so phenomenal, which it just has no right to work this well. But it's, I can't believe he pulled it off. I don't, he's got his boot. This, this movie is so good. And to a large extent, Tom Hardy's just one gear. Yeah, he this is. this enormous machine. He's barely a supporting character in this movie. Right. Whereas in The Road Warrior, specifically, it's like there is no yeah, movie without Mel Gibson. Him. Right. And however, I, I, did, I did deep think about this today. And about how the relationship with Furiosa would probably be more of like a, a father-daughter dynamic. It's plausible, for sure. And it, I don't think that would have... It's hard to say if that would have worked or would not have worked. But if you did have an older Mel Gibson, yes. But then it would have been possibly a pretty good counter to the older and Warden Joe. So it would have been one of those things where it would have been an interesting dynamic. But all that being acknowledged and theorized and Tom Hardy pulls it off which I would not have guessed because Tom Hardy is actually not one of my more cherished actors yeah he's not a guy that I ever would have gone to for something like this no, but it makes all the sense in the world when you say it. it it does and it's it's definitely he's not as emotive as Mel Gibson no he doesn't seem to have the rage that Mel Gibson can seem to kind of tap into yeah yeah because, well, Mel's got some challenges. <laughs> He's got rage issues for sure. Yes, he does. Hardy, Hardy, Hardy apparently a, is kind of a prickly cat himself. Though. And he had a rough 
childhood too, and he was an addict when he was younger. And... This was a really clever. I'm sorry to interrupt this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The extinguishing of the fire by using the droppable, you know, cattle guard. Yeah, is really a clever. <laughs> sorry, we've got dogs desperately yes. trying to break into the office. Look at this old M1 carbine <laughs> from World War One. I'm sorry, World War Two. Yeah, there's lots of lots of things like that. Oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, that. Who's to say if that was real or not? I mean, that was so well done. Yes, the editing really works well for this movie. Just the desperation on a second-by-second basis. And then, of course... The Agahide looks like she's about to go into labor any minute. Mm-hmm. This is when they lose the pod. I mean, this looks like a 1947 Chevrolet or something. <laughs> she's completely jacked up. And theres is this where the jump is? I believe so. Yeah. That shot of her looking out the right was in the trailer. And be careful of the wives. No more flames. Don't cook them. It's amazing. Rictus of all people is the one who realizes that because he does not strike me as the sharpest tack. Yeah. And a, a war boy saves saves his life. No greater honor. Well, he is a Morton. This is utterly amazing. It's like being blessed by God. I can do this. Take my gun. And then he's got his own can to bless people. Mm-hmm. See how his teeth are closed here. And later on, they're going to be open. Shiny and chrome. He's about to cry. It's like an emotional. Yes, it is easily the most important event in his entire life. Yeah. Which is what makes it really good when he fails in his endeavor and Joe just immediately discards him. Yeah. And I was wondering how he failed till I saw it this morning in his change. <laughs> just what a dumbass. Mediocre. <laughs> this is one of those things where the subtitling really works. Here's the jump. Oh, my God. And none of the stunt people fly off. That's amazing. Yeah. They must have been chained in pretty tight. And I'm sure he's wired in. Like, they all all have to be wired in. Yeah, it is total chaos, but it's certainly controlled chaos and very well planned and probably not chaotic at all. Yeah. So Max's hand is caught. So now you're wondering, is he going to wind up the same as Furiosa? Mm-hmm. Notice she's using her right hand. To... And the bolt cutters come back for a huge return. Yeah. Thank God you got that kitchen wrench <laughs> to steer. 
here he's trying to warn her. Well, that is easily the most valuable commodity in this entire world right now is the healthy pregnant woman. Yeah, and that's how he views them as commodities. Yeah. Good job. There's a gif. She's bleeding through the leg and falls in the door. And this this is painful, just watching her just roll under. And there's a split second. You actually see her body just twist under mm-hmm. the car. It's, it's horrible. Miller knew to show it so fast. Yeah, you so, can't dwell on something like that. No. You would lose your audience immediately. Yeah. And then Max immediately has a flashback. Do about this. something that happened to him that was probably pretty similar and if he if you'd seen the first mad max you yeah and that's the thing is i don't it's not clear if that is a callback to his family or something that happened post road work but to a large degree i do think of this as more of a sequel to the road warrior than you know thunderdome right okay a lot of people like to think that thunderdome never happened i can get on board with that thought and there's the mouth that see, is the open. mouth is open you can see his teeth inside too just it's just crazy this reminds me of uh who was it in predator just firing the oh yeah bill duke Duke. yeah firing the gun into the forest there's fresh tracks leading into that desert when the rig went over across the sand it reminds me of that shot in lawrence of arabia where they they're on camels and they're crossing the camera pan and they're they're making fresh tracks you're just thinking, how in the hell did they do that? But going back to production, as you were discussing, you know, so what? They initially started anticipating shooting, what were you saying, 2001? Yeah, that was the first time they tried it, yeah, with right. Fox. But even with this production, how long was the uh, weather-induced break? Was that? I don't know. Do you remember? Did they mention in the in the book like how many rain days they had, or because I, I don't my imagine my recollection was that you know they had a essentially a once in a lifetime rain and flood event that stopped production for almost a year. Really? Yeah. No, I didn't. Now, if I'm now if I'm getting that wrong, this is very embarrassing but there's only two people listening to this at this point anyway but that is my recollection was that was a huge wrench that was thrown into the entire plan was you know similar to apocalypse now oh yeah just you're trying to shoot in the elements yeah and mother nature as much as we try to save her wants to kill us and certainly wrecked havoc on man's plans i know i don't i don't recall that i do remember that after they because it suddenly turned the desert quite green. And so it changed the yeah, color did. palette. Oh, my God. Well, that happened to Terry Gilliam mm-hmm. when he was shooting uh, The Man of La Mancha back in the 90s. Did he ever finish that? Well, no, he didn't. He only made it like three days. But you know, oh, that was know, one of the it... problems was they were out in the desert and they were shooting like all day. Mm-hmm. And then a rainstorm came and it and they went back the next day to continue shooting. And the, the water changed the color of the dirt. And there was no way to to do it Reverted again. Reverted back, yeah. Yeah. 
uh, you could only color correct so much. And of course they were using film back then. Mm-hmm. Well, the other, the other pause that, that I remember happening, of course, at the tail end, you know, the president of Warner brothers himself came out and said, no, you're closing down in three days. Right. You, you do not have you. I am staying here until you close down in three days. So they, they did stop shooting in three days and they destroyed most of the cars. Some of the cars were shipped back to Sydney. Mm-hmm. Uh, they let a lot of the crew go. They had sets. I think they said they had 22 or 23 sets in, in Cape town that they were going to shoot in. They destroyed most of those sets some of those sets had been recently completed or only had like a day or two left and they were struck anyway. And so it was this massive waste of material that they, they could have taken advantage of, but Warner brothers didn't want them to shoot there anyway. And then it got down to a lot of them went to Cape town. They had to ship the cars to not to Cape town to Sydney. They had to ship the cars to Sydney and a lot of these guys who are production heads, they were using their personal credit cards to mm-hmm. keep the filming going. Keep the filming going. And Miller, of course, was using his own money just to finish because they didn't have the bookends. They got the final chase, but they didn't have the bookends. So it was basically running on American Express to get those bookends done. Did you find it? Yeah, that's what I'm looking at. Is that the trivia section of IMDb? It is not quite there, but we don't want to worry about it right now. You can always input it. Oh, yeah, this that this whole movie is just fraught with delays, right? Cause... Yes. But even when they went back to do uh, the bookends, it was it was something like three or four months later to do the bookends. So they they did that in Sydney, and you a lot of them couldn't make it back because they their lives had moved on, or they had contracts to do other. Yeah, they had other employment opportunities and commitments, frankly. Right. So Charlize Theron went back and she she had hair. You know, and so they had to skullcap her, which I was I was shocked when I heard that because you cannot tell. Yeah, I would the, not have anticipated that. It just looks so good. And then Zoe Kravitz was she also had to have a skull cap. Now, this is obviously shot day for night, but it's really good day for night. Yes. And this is actually a really, really nice sequence. The way where there is a, obviously a significant firefight, but it all occurs off screen. Yeah, there's a significant amount of this that, oh my God. Booby traps, they help. It just stopped everything. And they two are getting stuck in the mud, which does make me wonder, of course. And that was why the, is it muddy? That was the interceptor they were pushing mm-hmm. through the mud. And here's a, really the first time we see the poles, which come in later. The deficit mounts. He is definitely an accountant. Well, that's the guy, if I remember correctly, uh, runs the bullet farm. Yeah, that's the bullet farmer. Yeah. And if you, if you, there's, there's another scene where you can kind of see like his feet are mm-hmm. really messed up. And 
the first time I saw that, I was like, what, what is Miller getting at by showing us that? What's the whole point? But it was years later. I saw this documentary about American sailors who had helped detonate these atomic bombs in the Bikini Atoll. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Shad Baker, which was the one they set off. Uh, they hung it below a submarine, and the submarine was like 100 feet below the surface. And then they, they, so they set it off underwater, and they, they put all these ships in a lagoon to see what ships, how far away from the blast, would attain what type of damage. And a lot of these sailors went out to these ships to look at the livestock and inspect everything. Well, one of those sailors in the 1970s, his radiation sickness was so bad that he had started a, a lawsuit. He was trying to sue the, the Navy. And the camera was a close-up crop of his face or his or chest up. I wish I could remember the name of the documentary. And then at the end of the documentary, it was a full body shot. And his entire right leg looked like a mushroom, an enormous mushroom. And his right hand, too just looked four or five times the size. And eventually they were going to have to amputate to the knee and then to the elbow. Um, and But they they didn't think they were going to be able to save his life. And I think that's what, uh, I think that's what Miller was trying to get. You know, as a that doctor, he would have been aware of something like that. That he was exposed I like these size. Now, this vehicle, which looks like a 72 Dodge Charger. Oh, and I was totally mistaken. A tracked vehicle. That's called the Peacemaker. Yeah. And that's the Bullet Farmer. I totally made an error earlier. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. The accountant, I think, is from, He's from Gas, Gas City. City. Yeah. Yeah. The Bullet Farmer has like a... He's got the whole shawl and yeah. the bandoliers. Which is pretty impressive, actually. I do remember reading something from um, from Zoe Kravitz saying that you, you know, it's cold in the desert at night, as mm -hmm. you well know. And the crew could wear jackets and parkas and sweaters and things like that. But, you know, th these ladies are not wearing anything, really. Yes, the and, wives and Nux are a little bit chilly, I'm sure. Yeah, Nux doesn't wear a shirt for the entire film. And so he's got to be out there in this cold. And Zoe Kravitz says it was just crazy I mean that th this whole sequence every single shot looks like a painting and here we go when she says you've only got like one or two bullets left or something he just surrenders the weapon to her because he thinks she can get a better shot than he can and uses him as a brace yeah don't breathe His expression there was pretty classic. But a lot has been made of that moment where, you know, the man couldn't do anything, but the woman can. Mm -hmm. And a lot has been made of this being like this very feminist movie. But also, if you read Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, Miller says, you know, I didn't set out to make... Yeah, I don't know if I think that is a legitimate reading of it, but I don't know if it's necessarily the objective. Right. 
right? I think that's one of the nice things is you can kind of read it however you think is appropriate. Yeah, I do. I do like that reading, and I do. I do enjoy the movie for this reason that it seems like it's this ultra violent, over the top, huge testosterone, adrenaline junkie type film. And what it's really about is the sacred power of the feminine that we all must respect. Like it's, it definitely goes in different directions. Yes, I yes. think that's why it's more. Yeah, it's, there's some definite nuance. Yeah. Right, this is not a Schwarzenegger film from the 80s as much as I love Schwarzenegger <laughs> films from the 80s. You know, this isn't The Road War. It's actually a much deeper movie than that, even though it's hard to define exactly how or why, because the story is certainly no more complex. No, in fact, I was thinking that, you know, The, uh, the Last Jedi seemed to be somewhat similar in terms of the whole movie as a chase. Y- yes, that is true. This but, is much more logical than that movie and 20 <laughs> times more enjoyable. <laughs> but this is more like Thunderdome in terms of, um, of Max had gone to a certain place and then he returned. Right. And they do, they do much the same here. They do have like these sort of scythes on the rims of the tires. Mm-hmm. But everything just seems like is the the seat of their pants. Last second. Yeah. Skin of their teeth. Improvises with what's available as best as he can. But, you know, that's probably the way they've lived ever since. No, that makes a lot of sense. They yeah. would, those that can't are dead. Right. Or subjugated. Margaret Sixel was is George Miller's wife. She had four hundred and seventy hours to edit in this film. That's probably not even as many as she would have liked. And she she edited most of it when they were still shooting it. And it took her three months to watch all the footage. Which is actually pretty amazing considering I mean, they didn't have miles of film if it was all digital, but might as well have been. Yeah. All you, you, the, the difference is you don't have to spool it. I mean, right. that would obviously increase your time. But just the sheer volume of images that were recorded and stitching it together into some sort of narrative that makes some sense is a remarkable achievement. And it's not going to shock anybody to find out that she was nominated for Best Editing at the Academy Awards, and she won. I was about to say, who won? I hope it was her. <laughs> Mad Max uh, was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, this is one of those uncommon genre flicks that was, it worked on all levels. It was critically acclaimed, generated awards buzz, and rightfully so. Ten nominations. And well, and I think that you had a lot of people, and George Miller was nominated for Best Director, too. Mm-hmm. And I know it's because, you know, if you go onto the Internet, you will find director after director after director. Like Robert Rodriguez seeing the trailer at uh, Comic-Con 
the the previous year this came out and was like, how the hell did you shoot this? <laughs> you know, Rodriguez says it was the most the most confusing thing he'd ever seen in his life. Like, how is this possible? And the, I don't know how many people, um, how many directors are in the Directors Guild or how many of those directors are members of the Academy. And, you know, at least 100. Mm-hmm. You know, 200 is not unfathomable to think. There might be 300. I would say it's probably under 500. That are in the Academy? That Yeah. Because, you know, not not members of the Academy, but but voting members who are directors. Because, you know. Right. In, okay, that's what I thought. That's right. In the Academy, it. like, uh, only editors can vote for editing. Mm-hmm. Only directors can vote, vote for, for directing, right. et cetera. Only producers can vote for best picture. Uh, so it's it's not <clears> – <throat> unthinkable to think that those people, the Steven Soderbergh's and the Richard Rodriguez's saw this and thought, Holy shit. I know how hard it is to do this. Exactly. And that's how he got nominated. Beautiful shot. Pain is beauty in this film. And beauty is pain. Yep. Borderline sadomasochistic. Pretty crazy. So here's her backstory, which I'm guessing we're going to get into. With a sequel? Furiosa. Or, knowing the way these things have worked, it'll be a completely different. Well, Max is not in it. We know that. Right, but I'm just saying that the story you would anticipate could be dramatically different than what you actually get. Well, I hope so. I won't be. I hope so. George Miller. What an interesting career he has had. I mean, he did this after happy feet two. Mm-hmm. Not, not happy feet one, but two. Yeah. Well, one made a hundred million. Yeah. So he, they no, said, he, could you do that again? And he said, sure. And it made another hundred million. Babe, Pig of the City, made an enormous amount of money. Mm-hmm. So he directed the sequel, which they said didn't make as much. But it still probably did just fine. Yeah. We're talking about two movies about a pig mm-hmm. 25 years later. It had an impact. I did see A Thousand Years of Longing. 3,000 Years of Longing? Yeah, is that, yeah. yeah. I saw that with uh, my son in the theater. I have not seen that. That was took more patience, but and it's not for everyone. And but it had its it had its it had its moments. I mean, Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton were very very good on screen together. Not a pairing that you'd think that would work, but I think Miller is very good with putting people together that you wouldn't think. Right. No, it does. He does have an eye for. That. <coughs> This actress whose names escape me, Miller told her like two or three months out, you know, we're going to give you the world's best G-string to stand up here, but we'll cover you with your hair. Everything will be fine. And she said she got up there and the wind was everywhere. <laughs> there was no way to. And of course, this is another like famous gif of Max waving his finger and saying, that's bait. Yes. I've seen that all over Twitter. So Luke and I now say that whenever. Well, she's got it too. She's got the Amorton Joe symbol 
hanging God, from yeah. her belt it's right over her her crotch. So this is all a trap. Max knows it's a trap. And who falls for it? The woman. Mm-hmm. So these are the uh, Vuvalini. And apparently on the storyboards, they were called the Volvalini. But Warner Brothers was like, you can't. Can't do that. You can't do That's that. That's just crossing a line. <laughs> so we'll take out that L. <laughs> and no one will know. No one will ever figure it out. What we're talking about. And where did they get their gasoline? That's a good question. Runs off of ethanol, maybe? Where do they get their ethanol? Yeah, exactly. And it's one of those, I guess. Come up with your own answer. It works fine. That's her sister, I believe. Or cousin, or someone very close to her. So I thought this was interesting. Like, her name was Furiosa before... Mm-hmm. She left the Which green is, place. Yeah, that's not what you would have anticipated. No, I I took it. She was Christian that Christian that rather. Right, I took it like she got her name from the Fury Road. Mm-hmm. Or it could be the Fury Road got its name from her. her. Yeah, because she is pretty unique among the war boys. Is she a war boy? No, she's, she's an lieutenant. imperator. Uh, never, I, yeah. I don't recall the so entire in, hierarchy. In, yeah, in theory, and I, you know, we're all just making this as we go along. Mm-hmm. She's in charge of the war rig, and right. the war boys uh, report to her when they are on this journey. And there must be a cadre of imperators, and she's just one of one them. of five or fifteen. Yeah, because in the in the beginning. Um, Nux asks, they say an Imperator has gone rogue, mm-hmm. and he's like, which one? And the answer is Furiosa. And they can't believe it. So here... And this is where she gets the bad news at the green place. They just went through it. Yep. It's no more. Yeah. When I watched Thunderdome... A couple of months ago. And I won't say like it's a completely bad movie. No, it doesn't work as well, but it's still got its... It's, it's got its moments. But I, I, I really liked... when you, We talked before about Mel Gibson being in this film and how it would have been different. That There's that moment in Thunderdome when he reaches the Oasis. Mm-hmm. And he's done. He's like, I'm, I'm never leaving this place. Right. I am perfectly fine staying here for forever and dealing with these kids because this is way better than what's out there. And I, I, I found that more profound. And I think that one of the problems of that film is that they don't emphasize that. Mm -hmm. And if, if Gibson had been in, in this film, you know, there's that moment when Tom Hardy decides Let's go back. Let's turn around and go back to the Citadel. Because, I mean, it looks like they took out about half of them getting here. Mm-hmm. So they could very well take out half of them going back. Of course, they all might be dead by the time they get there. 
but it's another as much as I like this film, I don't think there's enough emphasis on that point. Okay. Of what does it take for Max to say, I'm going to push aside my trauma, mm-hmm. push aside my survival instinct, and push aside everything. Right. Why does he make this choice? Why does he go back? Why does he tell Furiosa? That's the right way to go. Yeah. This is this is like the second time we're silent. Or it's quieter, I should say. Mm-hmm. So she too is pregnant. Yes. Which is known possibly only to her. That's a strong blue filter on that camera. Mm-hmm. And you do see some shadows under the the bikes, which is why we know we're it's day for night. So she is the seed keeper, if I remember correctly. No, that's correct. Yeah, I believe that is accurate. And that's the dag. And we went from, you know, having four or five female cast members. Now we've got like eight. Mm-hmm. And then, so the, our male cast members are actually dwindling. And now, right now, it's just the one. Yeah. And by the end, we're going to have zero. So there is apparently a salt formation where they have to make it across, and that's where their great pause is. Maybe they can ride for 160 days. Uh, so I thought about this. This is this is also going back to Lawrence of Arabia where they were like, it's six or seven days across this, this one like flat plain where there is absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm like a void desert there's no oasis we can't go anywhere it's six or seven days we have to take whatever water we have to go at night so then i was thinking maybe they have enough to get across 160 days this has to be an, an allusion to the outback oh i no, i suspect you're 100 right yeah like i don't know how long it takes to cross the outback on vehicle or foot half year does seem like quite a while like but four considering months, five months yeah you got you have no roads Just looking at that, I mean, again, just looks like a painting. Him, him just facing away, or even him just turning over his shoulder and looking, or him just turning back straight into the camera. So that comes up later when he puts his hand up to block the arrow. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, this is kind of what causes him to change his direction. Is he failed before?
Well, in in the Road Warrior and in Thunderdome, he makes that that decision mm-hmm. to help. So we talked about this before we started recording that thing on his back. I mean, is it a life preserver? What what's going on with that? You had a theory. Oh, not on Max's back. Yeah. Oh. I thought you were referring to uh, Rick Morton Joe. No, or, I uh, Rictus. Were... Rictus yeah, has some sort I... of breather. Right. That's what I was understanding you were referencing. I assume this is just a backpack full of supplies or possibly a camelback for water or camelback style apparatus. That would make sense. Yeah. Full of water. Aqua Cola. That's a very strange reason to not be for it, though. It'll take two weeks. Like, you were going to drive for 160 days. Yeah. 14 is, you know. Right. That's kind of strange logic. Mm-hmm. And here... His plan is... It's what I like about the whole film is that it's actually quite simple. Oh, yeah. It's It's simple now and then simple later. It's not convoluted. It's just a straight path. His plan, kind of like this movie, works because of the audacity. (laughs) Well, that's how a lot of battles are won. Audacity. And I'm sure quite a few are lost in the same method. But yeah, yeah, those true. are less fun to make movies about. Of course, when he says nothing but salt, it's almost like a double entendre there. Salt, of course, is mm-hmm. you can't grow anything. There's not a whole salt. lot of life in salt. Right. And then he says the word redemption. Which for some reason is what drives her. Well, it just seems like she's she has more than likely done a whole lot oh, of bad sure. things yeah. for Morton Joe. Oh, for sure, yeah. And kind of like the Black Widow from the Avengers. Mm-hmm. She wants to get the red out of her ledger. <laughs> Two warriors. <laughs> Those are the feet that I was referring to before. And that is so grotesque. Watching that thing just expand and contract is just creepy. Mm-hmm. This it's, shot is the most like the the Road Warrior and the Great Humongous. Yes, I do like how they have to assist him in there. And like I said, oh, that's that's just crazy. And you know, Miller doesn't look at this shot here. Miller does not get. I think a lot of credit for uh, his ability to block. Well, no, I guess you're right. He doesn't, but you never, you never really hear of Miller being celebrated among the Pantheon. Right. That's that's right. But he definitely has the skill and it's, he's not that prolific. 
No, but it, it does seem like everybody knows his films. Like the the Witches of Eastwick when it came out was just everybody knew about that film. And I never it, think of that as a George Miller film, but it certainly is. It yeah. And he keeps talking about how that was a big learning experience for him. You was know, that his first with, major Hollywood film? Uh, yes. So yeah. I can see why. Yeah, I would see that. Like, th- uh, this, this is crazy. This is fucking crazy. Like, this is one of those scenes like we were talking about how there were there are three or four of those big moments mm-hmm. like that the Road Warrior had one. This is one of those moments. Like, you know, he's pissed off because they've got the Interceptor and he's – they're blowing the Nitro. Straight into the engine, straight into the blower, yeah, into the into the turbo. That that's just crazy. And then uh, Nux gets out there and he starts like putting the nitro in well, his it, mouth. It's, yeah, it's not nitro; it's gasoline. It's gasoline. He's, they're putting, putting gasoline it right into, into the intake. It. Yeah, Th- that's. You kind of expect Nux to die by a rod getting shot through the hood. Yeah. The that car, uh, Max's Camaro, Interceptor. In, yeah, the Interceptor. That, that's it's a Falcon. Really? Yeah, I believe it's a Ford Falcon. It's not a Camaro. A Ford Falcon. Yeah, it was an Australia only vehicle, if I remember correctly. It just happens to look like a Camaro. It looks like a seventy-seven or seventy-eight Camaro. Yeah, I mean, we'd have, really? we have to look, and I'm sure, that, like again, the three people that are listening to this have probably thrown. Yeah. You know, cans of beer against the walls, and you dip shits. But I believe it is. A fa- I believe it was called a Falcon, if I recall correctly. Well, that's one of the things that I'm. I'm really hesitant anytime I cover a, a film from another country, particularly Australia, mm-hmm. where because the Aussies are just so fucking proud of their movie industry. As you know, it is under appreciated, but it is pretty robust. It is. And I saw the documentary on Netflix, the Ausploitation mm-hmm. document. It was it was brilliant. It was really good. There was another one that was made, and Tarantino was on it. It was like basically these are not really the films that you ought to see. Those are just <laughs> the films that Quentin likes to talk about. These are the genre. Of, what, what's I'm sure he was a big fan of. What is it? Road games. I think that was one of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was shot down there. BMX Bandits was not on that list. <laughs> well, it's no rad. Yeah, that's no rad. So one of the... Gosh, this is a shockingly violent sequence. Oh, I know. And I can't believe just how there's moving the camera left, right, left, right. Right over him. Oh, my God. And he just gets like a satisfaction out of it. It's just mm-hmm. disgusting. Yeah, the the interceptor in it, regardless of what it actually is, regardless of what it actually is on the set, it was known as the black on black, mm-hmm. which has some sort of Australian connotation to okay. it that I don't understand. I don't... And I looked up, and I still don't like what. It's like. Uh, Double clutching. Like, even if you drive a standard, because you know, they mentioned it in Fast and the Furious, mm-hmm. you know, you, you know, you're not double clutching like you should. 
Well, if you're double, like, I don't want to get into it. The double clutching is, as you know, is because we both drive standards. It's yeah, actually a do, fairly yeah. complicated yeah, it's not an sequence easy yeah. that you have to pull off in order to actually get some extra horsepower out of what you're doing. And so my son uh, drives a standard, too. So he didn't actually know what double clutching was. He just liked the line. I'm like, no, that's actually a thing. Like, you you know, you can get more horsepower out of it. I'm sure some of these crazies are double clutching while they're spitting gasoline into their intakes. But when you actually read what it is, it's actually just, like, extraordinarily difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is not for those who don't have any idea. Although YouTube has made it a lot easier. Oh, my God. Max just taking these people. Okay, so the polecats, like, this This is one of those things, like, we don't actually know if this is going to work. We're going to put an engine block on one of the end of the poles and... And a dude on the other. Yeah. <clears throat> And Tom Hardy actually he saw this in the storyboards and he was like, I don't I don't actually think they're gonna shoot this. Like this is just a sequence that this is never gonna take off the ground. Then he showed up at set one day and they actually have figured it out. Yeah. And I I do remember uh seeing that one shot in the trailer. Mm-hmm. Um it was the only trailer of Mad Max I saw, and I didn't see another one because I didn't want to see another one because I wanted to go in you as know, blind as possible. But yeah, it's the it's the you know we talked about it before. Yeah, and Tom Hardy was on the pole and was just going right in front of the camera, and then away from the camera, and I just thought, oh my god, this movie just looks amazing. I had the same I had the same feeling when I saw Die Hard the trailer for Die mm-hmm. Hard 2 when he he ejects out of out the, of the uh, exploding exploding airplane and then he's he's strapped to the seat yeah, and he screams into the camera <laughs> I was like oh my god I got to see this movie There's Max putting his hand up to his head and getting saved The arrow through the hand still gets into his head a little bit Yeah well, so that's another thing that I really like about uh, the heritage of the films themselves. So the, the guy driving around with the harpoon here that comes, he takes toast, mm-hmm. right? And Zoe Kravitz actually did this. She was wired to this guy. And she actually did that stunt herself, which is like crazy to think about. What is she, like 80 pounds soaking wet? Oh, probably at most, yes. You know. Uh, what was I saying before? I like the one-way stop being used as a shield. Yeah. Double purpose for everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the so the the trailer, uh, you know, and the the only trailer that I've had recently where I've had that same sort of premonition of oh I must see this film. Did you see the fucking Mission Impossible trailer that just came yeah, out last that's... month? Yes, I did. The The last shot of that trailer, I started, like, laughing out loud in the theater because I had that experience again. Like, this is going to be a batshit crazy movie. I must see this. Now, if we're going to rank him, I'm sure that Fury Road's going to come out on top and Mission Impossible not too far after. May not be too far and, beyond, yeah. And, you know, maybe we can put uh, Die Hard 2 further down that. Die Hard 2 in the end, list, eventually being a little bit lower, but that's okay. The trailer was real effective. The trailer was very effective. I think it's Rennie Harlan's only good movie. No, no, no. I like uh, Long Kiss Goodnight. You know, you're not alone in that thought. Like, I don't care for it, but there are huge defenders of that movie. Yeah, and Cliffhanger's okay. 
There's a rewatchables on Cliffhanger. I, I have, yeah, I haven't listened to it yet. Oh, and this is probably the most heartbreaking scene because I am a heartless monster. The end of the interceptor. Oh yeah. Oh, it's horrible how they just decide to crush it and do away with it. Yeah, this car's been killed at least twice. It'll be back for the next. Well, and to this day, if you have a a supercharged V8 engine in a police car, that's specifically meant to to hunt down speeders mm-hmm. it's called an interceptor yeah even yeah. in the united states harris county sheriff's office they put them in tahoes they supercharge the tahoe and they they put interceptor on the back of it oh my god I mean, it's just a tour de force just some of, if not the best, action ever captured and edited on film. What I was trying to get to before, and we keep getting interrupted by the action because it's moving just so fucking fast at this Eisenstein type of editing rate. Uh, Max has a brace on his leg. Yeah. So, you know, from. Because it, you know, it was crushed in the uh, first movie. In the first movie, it was run over by a motorcycle. Right. Yeah. And so and so he's wearing it in the second film mm-hmm. in, in The Road Warrior. And then he's got uh, uh, the brace itself is gone, but the bandage he puts on his leg in the in the Road Warrior is still on his leg when he's in Thunderdome. So there's an amazing amount of continuity, even in from film to film, even though you don't. Even though the story doesn't necessarily interlock. Right. But dare say most people who've seen Fury Road did not see. The other three films. Well, I bet you. Gosh, I wonder what percentage didn't see the Road Warrior. I would say that if they had seen another film, it, it only had to be the Road yeah. Warrior. Yeah. This guy's dead. He's put his foot <laughs> on the gas. It's... Holy and shit. And this is the part that I remember from the uh, trailer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of him, of him being on the polecat. Well, it wasn't. It hasn't happened yet. It's not the polecat, but it's when the tank. Oh my god! That's the shot. That's the shot there. That's the shot that I recall from the trailer. Yeah, where I was like, "This just looks crazy." It's like I, I will pay you my twenty bucks and, and not be mad. Yeah, for the XD experience That's and the right. super whatever. I'll see you in the Dolby Cinema. Like, like he's going over. That's just. This is nuts. This is now officially nuts. Look at all those cars. It's, it's like 25 or 30 cars. And the nice thing about this is so well done that, again, as I was referencing, there's kind of a universal appeal where, you know, the critics enjoyed it. The audience obviously enjoyed it. But this is one of those where it's going to be a much bigger audience than just your standard action movie crew. I mean, my wife loved it. My daughter loved it. Yeah. My wife liked this. I, I, I want to show this to my daughter. We we went through. We saw the Road Warrior. She actually liked the Road Warrior. Well, the Road Warrior is tremendous. I mean, it's one of the best movies of the 80s. Yes, it is. In the top 100. I would definitely. Because it's so well executed. Now, my grandparents saw the Road Warrior. They didn't like it. Would would that be like an age thing? Hey, oh, I'm sure they said that movie was stupid. I'm like, well, you could look at it like that. 
Casablanca. Like that's a real movie, not the road. <laughs> yeah, what do they know? Yeah, it's only top five. And you know, one thing that I really was not expecting when I saw this for the first time was like the doof warrior being involved in the battle. Right. It is not a. It's a side side character, obviously, but it's not just a one sequence and gone. And I, I suppose that's one of those things that I understand that Miller told the cast and the crew is like, listen, we have certain shots in, in the storyboards and I want to get those shots, but we shouldn't let the shots dictate where the story goes. And what I understand from Charlize Theron when her interview in uh, Blood, Sweat and Chrome was that nobody actually knew how the movie was going to end even before they shot it. Mm -hmm. So despite the fact that they had these very specific things that they needed, nobody knew how the movie was going to end. And Miller was like, yeah, we'll just kind of figure it out where it goes long. Yeah. This is crazy. And here they're deliberately using Rictus's bias to manipulate him, which is brilliant. And I love how Max is basically playing distraction with Rictus. Rictus Erectus. <laughs> Sounds like a Monty Python name. They it shouted really out. <laughs> Was the life of Brian? Yes. Biggest Dickus? Biggest Dickus. <laughs> but we, we kind of missed it before but when uh, Nicholas Holt, who plays Nux, Nux spits in uh, Furosa's face. She mm-hmm. spits in his face, and he spits right back in her face. And Theron doesn't flinch. Right. She takes it and just turns right back around. This is killer. This is... I can't believe there's like three things going on at the same time. Toast takes it in the face. Imperiosa rips off his face. Max saves her. Toast takes the wheel. Takes the wheel. And then she spits on him. But they they never stop. They never stop. Man, they are touching the hot engine with their bare hands. Very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the engine was. I mean, actually, that, that shot there where they were. That was touching. She put her hand on the glass. There was one shot there when she was uh, on the roof. The dog was on the roof. Mm-hmm. And the mountains went by. It did, actually, that may have been like a CGI background. It might have been, yeah. But, you know, forgiven. That, like, right there, that's just because of the distance. I did see that with with the director of photography, Seal, George Miller, said, I don't want this to be oversaturated. I don't want this to be bleak. I don't want it to look monochrome. As naturalistic as possible. Like, uh... Uh, other post-apocalyptic movies typically are. I want it to be very colorful, as colorful as we can be mm-hmm. under the circumstances. Oh my god, Rick has taken them. I mean, it's just crazy. Like, there's no way you can get it off those plates. No. But 
you know, witness me. And here he decides, I'm going to sacrifice myself for the right thing. And this is the only, uh, the second only full CGI shot in the film. And this is about the only part that doesn't work for me in the whole movie. I remember watching this in the theater and this was a effect, not the crash, but the items flying at the audience that it's like, oh, okay, this is our, it was designed for a 3D experience. Oh, right. And it really was jarring to me because I didn't see it in a 3D. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I can see. It's about the only shot in the whole movie that doesn't really work for me. And I know that people say, well, that must matter. No, I remember when Avatar came out. What was that, 2006? And, right. and you had gone and seen it and had come back and you said, no, you should see it. I didn't want to see it. You're like, no, you should see it. It's pretty good because it's the first 3D movie in which people are not doing this. Right. It actually worked. Yeah. And for our audience, I'm actually like thrusting my hand in Dave's face. Not doing this. Like Jaws 3D or something mm-hmm. like that. But that was that kind of 3D moment. Yes. Yeah. And this reminds me of Three Kings. We've got to get air back into our lungs. Furiosa is banged up bad. And that's another thing I liked about it. She's actually pale here. Like, she's, like, deathly pale. Like, she, yeah. they, it's like her skin is not getting enough blood. And I think that goes back to Miller, who knows what it looks like when skin doesn't get enough blood. But there's a lot of things about anatomy in his mm-hmm. films that are... Directly probably, tied to, yeah. yeah. Well, Lorenzo's Oil, I don't know if you've ever seen Actually, it. Actually, I haven't seen Lorenzo's Oil. It's, it famously rips off the entire soundtrack from Platoon. It's like they ran out of money and were like, let's just get a just, soundtrack that we already... It's the same fucking soundtrack. I, I don't mean like the same composer. And, and they thought this was a good match. They thought it was a good match. So it's very bizarre because you're like, that's the same string section you hear when Elias is mm-hmm. getting cut down in the fields. So it's very weird, but at the same time, like a, as a as a medical drama, uh, yeah, I don't think there is a better person to direct it. No, that does make a lot of sense. Because there are points where you, it gets very technical and you can get lost. <clears throat> and I'm not a big fan of Nick Nolte and Susan Sarandon, but you know they, Miller That's makes that they movie can work. Make a good movie. Yeah. And then he says, "Hey, my name's Max." Okay, so it, so he thinks that she's going to die. That's why he's saying his mm-hmm. name, right? Like, he just thinks that she's going to die. And he doesn't want her to die because he feel like he fails again. Right. This guy is pretty awesome. You know, that goes back to, and we kind of hit that before, was, as we move back into the Citadel, there's a certain segment of the population which is used to hiding and being out of out of our vision, out of our pocket for various reasons, whether they're veterans or people of accidents or people with birth defects. And Miller just doesn't give a shit. No. Miller's, you can be in my movie because it establishes my point, my environment, my atmosphere. That's an amazing shot. 
uh, that's like a poster on a wall. There's certain certain stuff in here kind of reminds me of Triumph of the Will. Okay. You know, just how it's how they're lined up on both sides. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's like deliberate, like it is in Star Wars, it's deliberate, but I don't know if it's deliberate so much as it's just an iconographic shot and it's easy to draw and you know be inspired by it. It's effective. Child warriors. Mm -hmm. You know, this was the, you know, when he wrote this in the early 2000s, when it was really started coming together, you know, this was a huge issue, particularly in Africa. Oh, the, the, uh, the warlords taking children and teaching them how to kill and then using that guilt as, as teenagers to keep them in line. I guess that's explored in that uh, Beasts of No Nation. I haven't seen that. I haven't either. I don't really want to see it. Yeah, it isn't. It's not a topic that. No, it's not one of those where it's like, oh, I'll spend an enjoyable two hours. Mm -hmm. Like Blood Diamond. Never saw Blood Diamond. Yeah, very good, very good. But it, yeah, you know, does explore that topic. Toast looks like. Who's the girl from Batman? Zoe Kravitz. Julie Newmar. Oh, okay. <laughs> she looked like statuesque is what I want to say. I think that's the line from that movie with Patrick Swayze. Tu Wong Fu thinks for everything Julie Newmar. They, gotcha. they call her like this. She's just statuesque person. That's what uh, Zoe Kravitz looked like to me there. Not to take anything away from Riley Keough or Abby Lee or Courtney Eaton. They all, I mean, Miller was obviously trying to get like supermodels to. Yeah. How many supermodels want to go out and spend a year in the desert? Apparently five. <laughs> and that is about it. So this is the big ending. Like, what do we do? Do Does Max go up on the. No, the he elevator? does not follow up. He goes off and just like the end of the Road Warrior, he just is doomed to forever wander the wasteland. But this apparently was the big the big issue. That the big was the thing, thing like is what, what to do with him. What to do with him. And I have to say, like we were talking, again, I, I don't want to uh, besmirch the name of Tom Hardy here, but if this were Mel Gibson. It would have been he, perfect for him just to stay. Yes, if he were 55. The end of the road, yes, so to speak. He would have stayed. And I would have been fine with that. Oh, it would have been a really nice end to the saga, such as it is. Yeah. And Furios' arm is bare. Where we must go. We who wander this wasteland in search of our better selves. Okay. There we are. Well, thank you all very much for your patience and understanding. If nothing else, I know you enjoyed a kick-ass action film. And I, I hope to see you next time at the Super 70 Podcast as we tackle our, our next subject. But first, a special edition. Thanks for hanging out with us while we watched Mad Max Fury Road. You can rate me on iTunes and wherever you can find podcasts. 
You can find me, my books, and my blog at thatdylandavis.com, and you can email me anytime at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. I'm Dylan Davis, and we'll see you next time, wherever the hell I want. moment where I was like, we need just, I need to shave my head. We need to shave my head. Like, I can't think about what I'm going to do with my hair in this movie anymore. I'm going to be in a desert. I'm a new mother. Let's just shave it and stop talking about it. And I called George because I was so excited that I was, you know, that I had finally come to this conclusion. I think I woke him up at like 3 a.m. And I said, George, we have to shave my head. And he just took this breath. It was like, finally he could breathe. And he just went, Yes. And so the next day we did it. And it, I, I, I think it was the right decision for the movie. I look at the movie now and I just, I can't even imagine doing it any other way.